Bondzilla presents King Kong. Each week we dive into the world of King Kong. This week, producer Dino De Laurentiis brings us the first remake of the original. It's the 1976 version of King Kong. everybody welcome once again to bondzilla presents i am nick i'm will and our april extravaganza month continues and when i say april extravaganza i just mean we have three major episodes this month uh for you we started off beginning of the month with a brand new release of godzilla versus kong that was a lot of fun we got you the next step in the star trek franchise we brought spock back from the genesis planet not us personally, but the Star Trek crew did in Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. And now uh, an episode that we basically kind of have always hyped up and talked about um, just in terms of our excitement to finally see this movie uh, since really the beginning of Bonzilla Presents. And that is the first remake of King Kong, 1976 version of King Kong. So uh, April, I think, was a uh, I mean, I can't speak for this episode yet, but I think it's been a pretty exciting month here at the Bonzilla podcast. Just a lot of stuff. It is and going on. It is. That's um, true. Just so much um, Kong and just love going around. Yeah. That's why it's like so. It's so funny that there's like so much Kong this um, this this month. Yeah. In fact, like so much. It's so much love. It was funny right off a of mic. We were talking about um, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and um, I think it was an episode, a couple episodes back, actually had a, a Skull Island name drop. Mm -hmm. at one point which i thought was like really funny because that was like the week that i think that um godzilla versus kong came out yeah i thought that was like super funny that they that they did that yeah it's it's been interesting to have kong kind of again surrounded in the mainstream again like you know like i've been kind of back at work and kong has been a discussion at work you know just because of the movie but also just generally like king kong as as an icon as a character mm -hmm. um and and so it's been really interesting to sort of take in sort of again this kind of current you know love for kong especially for his role in kong versus godzilla um and i i think so far i mean we we've gone through the original kong era uh you know the original 33 film and it's 33 sequel son of kong um but this is the part of kong that i was you know i was very interested in son of kong because of its kind of uniqueness of sort of this very quickly made sequel but this is also the sort of stuff that one of the reasons i was very interested in in looking at kong is like it's a film that yes has been remade a couple times but we do have kind of these distinct you know films like this 70s one and and the next one which will you know, eventually get to it, the, the sequel to this one. And just, again, the sort of the evolution of this franchise and the iconicness of this specific creature, I think, is 
has, is fascinating and, and it's already been fascinating to go through. And, and I think it'll be fascinating to talk about it in the context of this particular film. Yeah. Um, 100%. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just, um, I was going to say, especially with this, you know, with the, with the Kong stuff, just really recapturing and like, you know, just reestablishing an icon is something that has been, as you said, the most fascinating thing, especially after doing this, the, all the iterations of the show in which that was the exact reason that we kind of, that, that we did and did it in the first place. So. And I think it's also interesting because, you know, we're in this particular series, we are looking at all the major American releases of King Kong, mm-hmm. but it's also, and like, then, well, the other thing I was going to say is like the big thing about this movie, why we were really looking forward to it is that the dude is in it. Yes. Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Jeff, uh, yeah, the one I, I think with Bridges. Bridges. You got Jessica Lange. You got Charles Grodin. I'm very interested. I'm talking about all of them, actually. Char- Charles Grodin was the one. I know we're going to get to it, but like that was the one where I'm like, who is that? I know who that is. Yeah. And then I looked it up. On, like Then I was like on IMDb, and I was like, that's the dad from Beethoven. I love that guy. <laughs> See, it's me. I'm like, he's the he's – the, idiot brother from great muppet caper that's like me for right Charles right he's yeah. also he, he's that's also where i that. th- that's where i know him most from but he's 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 one of those guys that pops in a lot of stuff did you did you, did you know that dean jones was in the first beethoven yes i didn't know that i, I thought about you when i was like looking that up trust so. me if it's if it's a dean jones fact you know i know it. i pretty much know it listen i i own his album on vinyl his random vinyl from the 60s that like should not. I don't think ever actually got a release from what I can figure. But anyways, this is, someday I might do a Dean Jones podcast. I may do it, but this is not that day. The the now, one thing. I was, but, but this is just the going back to the Bridges thing. Now I'm just getting this. The dude, like the big Lebowski on Skull Island, just seems like. I feel like there's a perfect match there. I guess like that's how you would just pitch like the solo movie with the John C. Riley character. Yeah, yeah, that's like, actually just imagine like, it's like him surviving Skull Island, but you play it as if with the same tone of the Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Careful, man! There's a katana here. <laughs> I think you could put the Big Lebowski in almost any franchise, and it would be like very entertaining. Oh, this Kong really, really ties the room together. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> <laughs> soon as they get to skull island that that, that's what they missed they missed uh john goodman's character talking to like you know like sam like samuel jackson's like we have to show kong who really is like king on this island and then they missed the point where he's like you're you're out of your element packard (laughs) which i think actually if i remember correctly yeah i think jordan vote roberts because I know Jordan Vote Roberts actually felt really uh, self-conscious about asking Samuel Jackson to do a, like, hold on to your butts. Yeah. But I think, like, Sam Jackson is like, he's Sam Jackson, so he's like, yeah, of course, I'll yeah, say it. Because you could, you, could have, you could just have the dude walking around Skull Island, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And then, like, yeah. like, they're, like, then you have an action sequence with, like, I don't know, these giant birds. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And then you could just have him shout out, I hate the fucking giant eagles, man. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. So anyway, 
Um, speaking well, of Skull Island. Well, yeah, the one thing I was going to mention before is that uh, before we get to the, the uh, pre-production discussion on this film is that what's also been interesting and we are talking about these American versions of Kong, but it's also been interesting because, you know, on the original era of the podcast, we did get to look at the two Japanese Kongs and kind of really get to see, you know, that's part of this step. Like those films came out between the original 33 and this one. So it's really kind of interesting to consider those as part of that evolutionary line. And if you have, if you're just joining us for the Bondzilla present and you haven't listened to our old episodes, I, I recommend them. There's a lot of great ones, but I really do recommend, I think our King Kong versus Godzilla episode and our uh, King Kong escapes episode, I think are both uh, very fun. And I think are very much kind of a, a part of this, even though we're not re going over them, they're very much a part of this sort of discussion and kind of this evolution of Kong as a character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 100, 100%. And also um, really puts into perspective. What's great about it for me is that it puts in pers- perspective where I stand on, because I don't want to call my history with Kong complicated by any means because I never considered myself to be as much of a fan mm-hmm. of them um, or of the icon, I should say. So what's fun about watching these is that it really puts into perspective where exactly I'll, I stand with the franchise, which this movie actually, I think, cemented that more so. I felt like if anything, I walked away from this movie, it really uh, established like, OK, th- this is how I feel about King Kong. So I'm going to be interested to kind of dive into that. I'm going to be interested to dive into the movie itself. But before that, as this tradition on this podcast, we are going to talk about how we got to this movie, how we get from 1933 with that, you know, King Kong and Son of Kong, how we get all the way to 1976 for a Dino De Laurentiis production, returning to the podcast for the first time since Flash Gordon, Dino De Laurentiis produces. Oh, I, I, I thought you were like zooming in another guest. I thought <laughs> you were being like, "All right, like for that now returning back to the podcast." I'm like, "Whoa, we have a, we have a guest." <laughs> I mean, our one of our what, it could just have to be Patrick or Kenny. Like who? Right. Right? Yeah, that's the only the only other guest. That's the only guest we've ever had. No, but Dino De Laurentiis returning and other familiar names that we will definitely talk about as we get into the production of this movie. But first, we do have to discuss where Kong was between 1933 and 1976. Why was there not more Kong sequels, or or why did why did this happen? So. If we remember last time, Son of Kong, we have our, our good monkey-loving friend, our ape-loving friend, I should say, gorilla-loving friend, Miriam C. Cooper, is unsatisfied with the production of Son of Kong. And so he's moving on from RKO, and RKO's moved on from Kong at this point as well. They're like, Son of Kong did do well. RKO is like, okay, we just, we, we're, we're back as a studio. Thanks to King Kong. Let's just kind of focus on other projects. Cooper, meanwhile... Uh, is moving on to Pioneer Films, which is essentially kind of not necessarily a sister company of RKO, but they have a close enough relationship where they kind of go back and forth on share scripts and everything like that. And Cooper at this point, and I hinted at this at the end of the last uh, Mainline Kong episode, he sort of believes that he actually owns the rights to King Kong, that not RKO, that he only loaned the rights out to King Kong, that he actually is the owner of the rights. So he moves the, the, to Pioneer Films, and during his time as Pioneer Films, he tries to uh, get a production 
of King Kong versus Tarzan uh, on the board, which I would have loved to see. I would have loved to see what the heck that movie was. Uh, so he's trying to get this, you know, Tarzan's public domain. King Kong is his kind of jungle and jungle. He thinks it's a natural fit. And even his old boss, uh, David Oselznick, who has also moved on from RKO, th- thinks that, hey, this is a great idea. But as word kind of gets around that he's developing the script, RKO steps in and, and says they're putting the kibosh on it. And-, and Cooper is kind of confused because he had believed, you know, he he had loaned the rights to Selznick and RKO. But, you know, at this point, he was kind of like, well, maybe there's just no clear owner because RKO is just wants nothing to do with it. And so he kind of like, all right, well, he just kind of moves on. He's like, okay, well, I guess these Kong rights are just in question for, for all of eternity. And there, there's no point of kind of pursuing anything more. RKO after this period, this 1933 period, they, 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 they're in a period of good business with Kong and, and kind of are back in that kind of the big five of Hollywood through the 30s and 40s. But the 50s are also very rough on RKO. Uh, the, the company is mostly purchased by one Howard Hughes and their main source of income at, in the fifties becomes their distribution deal with Disney that RKO releases all the Disney shorts, which turns into the Disney animated features, which turns into their early live action attempts. But Howard Hughes and Walt Disney clash on Walt Disney's desire to create full-length nature documentaries, which Howard Hughes thinks is crazy. Disney pulls all their distribution deals with RKO and makes his own distribution company and obviously becomes wildly successful with the True Life Adventure films and also RKO missing out on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea the very next year in 1954. And that basically spells the complete downfall of RKO. So Howard Hughes eventually sells his Serena company to General Tire, uh, a, a conglomerate that mostly focuses on tire and automotive vehicles. And though a, an attempt to jumpstart the studio is made, eventually RKO Films is completely done by 1959. So RKO is kind of shifted into a holding company for various television stations around the country. And so now General Tire, which is now known as RKO General, sort of holds these general rights to all the RKO library, including King Kong. So they're looking to like, okay, so they kind of sell the rights to some TV companies to kind of show RKO movies. But in 1963, as we have, you know, discussed on this podcast, Toho comes calling, essentially. And sort of this deal between RKO and Toho gets made to make King Kong versus Godzilla. And one Marion C. Cooper gets wind of this and is not happy is not happy at all because he thought that these Kong rights were kind of up in the air and like who actually owned them. But now that RKO was very much, or that now the people who owned RKO's rights were now very clear that like, Oh, we're just going to sell the Kong rights forever. Miriam C. Cooper sues and says, no, the Kong rights are mine. And though there is a lot of witness testimony to uh, Cooper's claim, including one David O. Selznick, who said that he actually sent a letter that said, oh, I'm being loaned the rights to this Kong idea from Cooper. Cooper realizes that many of his documents that were related to Kong were lost sometime after World War II, and he eventually loses the case. Though the case does make a point that at this point in the Kong lifestyle, that RKO owns the general rights, 
but the novelization is in the public domain. The novelization that came out the same time as the movie. And Cooper, unfortunately, dies a couple years later, having never regained his Kong rights. So the Kong rights for right now are still with kind of RKO General, though there is some questions about whether you could use the novelization for public domain purposes, and that will come up later. Trust me on that. So now we're going to jump to 1974. Uh, Another familiar name in the past couple episodes of this podcast is credited with the idea of remaking King Kong. And Will, that is one, Michael Eisner. (laughs) So Michael Eisner, at this point, this is 1974. He is not yet at Paramount, where he will have a big influence on the Star Trek franchise. Currently, he is an executive at ABC. But Michael Eisner sees a showing of the original King Kong on TV. He shows an original screening because RKO, again, is what they're using these film rights for is mostly loading them out to television companies to make money. So he sees this movie on television and, and thinks, oh, wow, this movie would be great to remake. You could just do it with modern effects. It would be perfect. So Eisner goes to his friend and CEO of Paramount, another familiar name for us, Barry Diller, who also just is taken in with the idea. Meanwhile, across the pond in Italy, producer Dino De Laurentiis finds that his daughter is a big fan of the King Kong film and actually wants a poster of it in her room. And when he gets the poster of King Kong in her room, he looks at that poster and says, this could be a movie. And wouldn't you know it, Barry Diller decides to call Dino De Laurentiis and they're both on the exact same page in its pure happenstance that they both think that a new kind of giant monster movie in the vein of King Kong would be great. And though Diller is kind of thinking, oh, we could just make our own general idea for a monster movie. It's De Laurentiis that says, we both like the Kong idea. Why not just do Kong? Why not just put Kong back on the big screen? Give it a modern effects We'll, get, we'll, hear it, we'll put it modern day. We'll make it all work. And so at this point, Paramount goes to RKO with De Laurentiis to negotiate the rights to make a new King Kong movie. Because obviously, again, RKO is not a film company anymore. They are not interested in making movies, but they could make a decent profit off this uh, original, you know, a new version of King Kong. So finally, May 6, 1975, De Laurentiis and Paramount pay RKO $200,000 plus a percentage of the film's gross to release a brand new version of King Kong to release in Christmas 1976. De Laurentiis decides, first of all, to hire uh, a writer, of course. He needs a writer for this movie. And the writer that he gets is a writer that he's liked his work of a writer who had just finished filming the political thriller Three Days of the Condor, which is also a great movie, by the way, one Lorenzo Semple Jr. That's another name we've talked about in this podcast before, but just as a brief reminder, Lorenzo Semple Jr. was originally a writer on the 1960s Batman series. He wrote the 1966 Batman movie, would go on to write Flash Gordon, and would go on to write the initial version of Never Say Never Again. So a a, a person we've had much familiarity with. 
and while if we remember to Flash Gordon, Semple was not really kind of into sort of De Laurentiis' comedic vision of it. Here, Semple was, we jumped right on board. He jumped right on board. He thought that the King Kong movie, just like De Laurentiis, just like Barry Diller, just like Michael Eisner, they all thought that this movie just had so much potential to be remade in a modern context. And Semple only got two instructions from De Laurentiis. De Laurentiis wanted the movie set in the modern day, and he wanted the movie to end at the World Trade Center as opposed to the Empire State Building. Uh, I actually have a quote here from Lorenzo Semple Jr. about his take on writing Kong. So I'm going to read this right now. Quote, We made a very deliberate attempt not to be anything like the original movie in tone or mood. Dino wanted it to be light and amusing rather than portentous. I don't think the original was meant to be mythic. The original King Kong is extremely crude. I don't mean it's not wonderful. It was remarkable for its time, but it was a very small backlot picture. We thought times had changed so much that audiences were more sophisticated. Dino felt we could have more fun with it. We hoped to do a sensational thing with advanced special effects on a big screen. So everything about that very much makes sense. And Semple, obviously known, obviously Semple did write these political thrillers, but he was also very well regarded for his use of humor on the original Batman series. And so he wanted to really give the film a kind of an ironic humor, lots of kind of funny sort of lines and one-liners and kind of, you know, kind of almost meta references, if you want to kind of put it at that. Semple was very interested in taking just the concept and the plot line, the basic plot line of the original film, though he was inspired by the uh, late 70s energy crisis and the oil crisis around the world to replace the filmmaking journey that defined the original film with this sort of oil based, the petroleum looking for thing that, that, you know, makes this movie what it is. Uh, Originally, uh, Semple had the map for Kong's Island be stolen by this petroleum company at the Vatican Library. De Laurentiis thought this was way too crazy, so eventually that was dropped for spy satellites. Um, another thing that De Laurentiis told Semple was that to limit the other monsters on the island of, of, of Skull Island or whatever the island is called in this movie... Um, mostly because De Laurentiis did not want to do any stop motion for the film or any of that, those sorts of effects. He wanted to kind of be all sort of as much practical as possible to that extent. And also because De Laurentiis felt that he wanted a big focus on Kong. Now, in the process, though, of writing this movie, all of a sudden, De Laurentiis Productions is hit with a lawsuit by Universal. Because Barry, sorry, Michael Eisner did indeed tell Barry Diller about this Kong idea. He had also mentioned this same idea to the CEO of Universal Pictures, Sidney Scheinberg. And even before Paramount was in their negotiations with RKO, Universal was in negotiations with RKO. And Universal claimed that they had had an agreement with RKO to produce a movie called The Legend of King Kong before RKO backed out and Paramount swooped in. Now, the main thing to note about this is that neither Paramount nor Universal knew the other studio was also simultaneously negotiating these rights. (laughs) 
So when Universal heard that all of a sudden Paramount was making this big King Kong movie, they were incensed and they were already spending production money on this. And Universal found this original ruling that the novelization was in the public domain and so made the claim that not only do these rights are ours, but that we shouldn't have to pay for these rights because the novelization is in the public domain. So we should be able to make the Kong movie however way we want. So then it's a whole big mess. RKO Reese, you know, counter sues or universal. De Laurentiis also sues universal because he believes they're trying to interfere with the production and the release of the movie. And included in all this, the son of Marion C. Cooper hears about all this lawsuit stuff. And he's like, no, this is, these are rights my dad always talked about. No, these are our rights. So then he sues everybody because he's <laughs> like, no, my dad still owns these rights. So basically, there's this whole mess of lawsuits that happened right at, right at the court of the end to the beginning of 1976. Though the lawsuits are still ongoing about what actually is going on with these Kong rights that really nobody knows. An agreement is eventually made between Paramount and Universal where Paramount will get to proceed on making this King Kong movie of theirs for 1976, hitting that Christmas release date, where Par uh, where Universal will still get an opportunity to make a King Kong movie, but it'll have to come 18 months after the release of the 1976 version of Kong. Though the lawsuit is still ongoing through most of 1976, and I will mention the results of that near the end of this pre-production stuff. So with that all the way, now, De Laurentiis Productions and Paramount are fully on board with this movie uh, and fully on board with making this movie, especially because the, the script comes together super fun, uh, super easily and super fun to everybody involved. Semple wrote a 40 page outline basically by August 1975. And even through all this lawsuit nonsense, the movie was continued to be worked on and eventually whittled down to its final draft in December 1975. And with that final draft, comes the casting and it, it's a movie with a lot of a lot of moving pieces but there are three main castings we do have to talk about here and we'll start with our male lead of the movie one as we've mentioned many times already jeff bridges the dude now jeff bridges this was very you know early on in his film acting career he was you know notably the son of legendary actor lloyd bridges who uh, you know, introduced his sons to acting, you know, Jeff and Beale Bridges. Very young, both of the Bridges brothers appeared on Lloyd Bridges shows uh, throughout their childhood. And eventually both of them, as we know, transitioned to acting. Now, by the time that uh, we hit like this kind of 1976 time, Bridges has already been nominated for two Academy Award acting nominations. And he, he really only started acting on film in 1971. So basically like twice in a seven year, in a five to seven year period, he'd already been a two time Academy Award nominee. So they're very eager to kind of get this kind of cloud of this really quickly rising star onto the movie and, and sort of was their big get for the movie. Now, Jessica Lang, on the other hand, uh, this is her film debut as Dewan, not Dawn, Dewan. Mm -hmm. And that'll be explained once we get to the movie. Uh, so in, in, you know, it's one of those situations we see kind of a lot of times, especially in this era, in this kind of 70s to 80s era, whereas, you know, the studio was very comfortable getting that male lead as being someone who was notable or rising or, or very famous, whatever it may be. Laurentis was extremely interested in kind of 
running the gambit of like every type of kind of actress that he could find, whether they were famous or whether they were not. He was really eager to kind of get a bunch of different auditions. So he does start off trying to go big. His first choice is Barbara Streisand, who again was a major star in the 60s and 70s. Uh, But she was uh, committed to her own personal version of A Star is Born. Kim Bassinger auditioned for this role, uh, one of her earliest auditions for the role. Most famously, Meryl Streep auditioned for this role. And the famous story that she tells with this is she auditioned for Dino De Laurentiis and Laurentiis' son. And Dino turned to his son and said in Italian, she's too ugly for King Kong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I read that. (laughs) And then Streep, who knew Italian, responded in Italian, like, I'm sorry to disappoint you. And Laurentiis was notably shocked by the fact that she understood what he said. Of course, Meryl Streep did not get the role. It does land into Jessica Lange. Now, Jessica Lange at this time was a New York um, uh, fashion model who had zero acting experience, none at all at this point. And Laurentis saw her in kind of a photo shoot and thought that she would have kind of the look he was looking for for Kong. So he brought her out to audition. Lang was interested in transitioning from fashion to acting once this kind of idea was brought up. Laurentis thought the audition went well, so... Jessica Lange was on board as well in her film debut, her first film. And then Charles Grodin in that same realm as Jeff Bridges, where he had just kind of recently started his film career a couple years earlier was got his big break as the lead in the heartbreak kid. Uh, And so De Laurentiis just kind of liked his acting and just decided to, uh, you know, give him, give him a shot in this movie. So this would probably be, you know, uh, Heartbreak Kid was kind of a comedy and a big comedy starring role for Groden. And Groden became known for his comedic chops and, and being kind of a, a consistent supporting actor in comedy. This, this would have been kind of Groden's first like true blockbuster film. There is one uncredited role that I think that will, of course, you would appreciate. And it is the voice of Kong in this yes, movie. I know about this. Is provided by one... Peter Cullen, uh, a.k.a. A.k.a. Optimus, Optimus Prime. Prime. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it's noted that Peter Cullen had a very terrible experience on this movie. He famously did so much yelling and grunting as Kong that he strained his vocal cords. Uh, and actually, I, I think there was some blood involved as well. Some like <laughs> kind of like coughing off of blood. Also, I do want to mention as well, um, Julius Harris, who was uh, the claw... Um, henchman in Live or Let Die uh-huh. um, is also in this movie, which I oh, really much, appre- much appreciated. So outside the casting, um, we also need a director. And the first choice for the directorship was Roman Polanski, who immediately said no. Terrible human being, Roman Polanski. Mm, yeah. Um, so instead, director John Gillerman who had just gotten off a big hit in the towering inferno was brought in to direct Gilliman was noted as one of those directors. Who's a very, he, he tends to yell at people a lot. And mm-hmm. so he got into a lot of cuffs with uh, the De Laurentiis family, both the, the son Federico and Dino De Laurentiis himself. 
uh, eventually, De Laurentiis is basically told Gillerman, like, calm yourself down or you're fired. And, and Gillerman liked working on the Kong movie, thought it was a good idea. So he decided to kind of play along. So outside of the directing, outside the casting, outside of the, you know, the script, the real major reason that De Laurentiis and Semple and everybody thought this would be a great idea for a remake was more modern effects ideas. De Laurentiis goes out and hires two sort of big names in the world of special effects, and they would become even bigger names in the coming years, but they were already kind of noted for their work. Uh, Rick Baker, of course, um, who is very famous for his makeup and, and, and mask work, uh, you know, be, you know, mo- probably most known for his crazy effects a couple years later in American werewolf in London, but you know, mm-hmm. becomes, you know, a seven time Academy Award winner for best makeup. And then as well as Rick Baker, we also have, uh, Italian Carlo Rambaldi, who would also go on later to win special effects, uh, visual effects awards, for Alien and E.T. So two kind of heavy hitters in this sort of era of um, special effects work. So the idea was that these two guys were going to team up. So Rick Baker was kind of in charge of creating the main Kong suit that De Laurentiis felt that he didn't want stop motion. He kind of thought that having a main suit actor, but something that was a little bit more realistic in a way than like the Godzilla suits that, you know, were kind of most known as big monster suits at this time. So he hired kind of Rick Baker to kind of make the main monster suit. And also Rick Baker eventually would also play Kong in the suit and, and design the suit for himself. Meanwhile, Carlo Rimbaldi was tasked with building this giant mechanical Kong, this kind of animatronic Kong that would be featured alongside the suit. Eventually what happens is, very famously with this movie as well, very famous even of the time, is that the uh, the animatronic was infamously very difficult to work with and essentially never worked. So they built kind of two sets of animatronics. The one that you see most in the movie are the hands, the hands mm-hmm. that grab like Duan and, and bring him up to Kong's face and everything like that. Another famous story involving these hands is once the, they were kind of completed for the first time and De Laurentiis wanted to check them out. And he goes into the studio and the hand like moves turns and gives De Laurentiis a giant middle finger <laughs> at which point the suit breaks and is stuck in that middle finger pose yes. for about a week before they That's could fully awesome. fix the range of motion. But that tended to be that kind of hydraulic animatronic hand tends to be what you see most of in terms of the animatronic, the, the more body and face animatronic, essentially just never worked. Rambaldi was never able, it was kind of too ambitious for its time period. The, the size and the scope of it was just, it never got to work. And, and, and I believe the amount you see of that animatronic in terms of the face is only about 10 to 15 seconds in the final product. So a lot more of the pressure for the special effects were now on Rick Baker's suit. So Rambaldi comes over to the suit production and helps design five different mechanical masks that uh, that uh, Baker can wear. So Baker and Rimbaldi kind of team up to make these masks. They build five to showcase different emotions. So like sad, angry Kong, confused Kong, um, but that can move even with Baker, you know, in the suit. 
Oh, I should mention too, just to, to give you the sense of what that uh, Kong size was, the the mechanical Kong was about forty feet tall, weighed about six tons, and at you know for that time it cost about five hundred thousand euros to make. I did find the euros. I did not find it in in dollars. I didn't do the conversion either. But yeah, just impossible to actually operate. So otherwise, you know, the other main thing was they did get the film in New York as well. Uh, on location, and they did get the film at the World Trade Center. Um, the, the New York uh, Port Authority, uh, who owned the World Trade Center, was worried what, when the crew brought 30,000 extras to watch Kong fall that they thought that the newly made World Trade Center plaza would collapse upon itself. So they ordered, okay, you're done shooting. But luckily, the whole team got the, uh, the, what they wanted out of it. And they brought in a bunch of kind of smaller extras for the actual death of Kong. Spoiler alert, Kong dies in this movie. But <laughs> if you know the King Kong mythos, um, you should know he dies. I'm sorry. He, he, he dies. With that, that basically kind of is the main set of the production stuff. I also do want to mention another connection we have to our previous podcast. The score of this movie was written by one... John Barry, which is actually the reason why he didn't do the score for next year's Spy Who Loved Me, which is mm. why I went to Marvin Hamlish because he was lots of uh, lots of these interesting little crossovers. Lots of these interesting crossovers, and also I will say this now: this is a very John Barry score. The score of this movie sounds right out of like kind of like the like kind of that Moonraker kind of era. Lots of the strings and the horns that Barry was known for at this time. The movie kind of comes together in that sense. Again, very much a focus on kind of trying to get these special effects to to work and, and kind of get the bigger scope, trying to make it a bigger version of that original 33. And at 33, again, as Semple said, it was like very big for its time period, but they wanted to make it bigger. They wanted to make it big for the 70s. They wanted to make it, you know, King Kong for the modern day. And you, you know what's like really funny about all that, about that level of production Mm-hmm. Also, just when I go back and do like a cursory glance over the history of making the movie, there's so much of an emphasis on the special effects. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there was so much of it. Like, this was definitely during like that marvelous era of like, there was legit love for like, you know, that there was no bones being made about like, that is the show. Like, that's what you're you know that that's that's the money maker right there at least behind the scenes like and there's so much attention and stories behind there and then all, all leading up to like you know a, a, like a thank you at the end of the movie and it makes me like one of the things that is like i find frustrating about it in retrospect is like there was there used to at least i felt maybe this is like a movie circle thing mm-hmm. is that there used to be so much attention and not in the craft, but just from everyone else on the love for the work that goes into special effects. And and it's a shame because, you know, there's so much like, in my opinion, good stuff today too, but because, you know, now it's in the digital realm, it doesn't quite get the same amount of like, you know, love. If that, you know, I was watching, I've been going through the MonsterVerse movies and watching the, all the special features and and they do a pretty good job on their special features, but especially in the Godzilla 2014 one and the Kong Skull Island one, you know, they went really in depth about how, you know, they had to construct like the, you know, the, um, 
like the creatures and all the like the different trials and tribulations about like how do you make a creature like this work and little things like all right well you know since it's digital like you know we have to make sure we frame it right so we have to do tests to like frame it so it's like basically bottom line is what i'm saying is i i always love going back and seeing this unabashed love and for the vfx people that i kind of wish they still got today I, I I think the love for VFX people is missing today yeah. in, in the same way. I think that's a very good point, honestly. And I think it's, it's especially because again, when you think about, you know, like what comes right after this is 76, it's like that next year is like, you know, Star Wars and the birth of industrial light and magic and the true special effects boom of that right, era. Right. And, and I, I should say that the ILM age like had, did have its day. Definitely. Yeah. And I think the closest thing you get to now is like maybe mocap stuff mm-hmm. had like a lot of love. But, you know, sometimes I like watch stuff like I was actually thinking about that, like, you know, the uh, you know, the Snyder cut, you know, came out and, you know, regardless of it, how anybody feels about it, I was watching and there were like some big, like truly good VFX scenes. Mm-hmm. made in a movie that you know did not have the same amount of production time that a movie normally has. So, you know, it's just that kind of stuff where it's like, you know, there there there's some love missing in the same way that we used to do in the old old days. Yeah, for sure. Uh for sure, dude. Um and we, yeah, we're we're we we're we're in a film, you know, we we've watched a lot of series that are very much focused on their special effects too, you know, mm-hmm. in, in different ways, you know, and and it's sort of the art of special effects is something that you know, we've always been very interested in. Now, the one thing that does kind of lead up to the release of this movie is this ongoing lawsuit because the movie is set to release in in December 17th, 1976, right before the Christmas season. And this big lawsuit between RKO, Universal, Paramount, and the, the, the estate of Miriam C. Cooper is still ongoing. And there is a little worried in the Paramount and... Dino De Laurentiis camp that even though that Universal made this agreement originally that if things don't go their way that it could affect the release of the movie and it's getting right up to the last minute originally in November 1976 a judge claims that the King Kong novelization is in the public domain so Universal is able to make their movie but you know Paramount is still able to release their movie and so everybody is you know, at least sort of happy with this <laughs> until a week or two later when that same judge reverses his decision and awards all the King Kong rights to the estate of Marion C. Cooper because he relooked at the arguments and saw, no, wait, what was that judge in the 60s thinking? Clearly these rights do belong to Cooper and do belong to the Cooper family. So his final judgment on the King Kong rights is that RKO owns the 33 film. De Laurentiis owns the 76 film and Cooper owns any future loaning and giving of rights of the King Kong franchise. He owns the rights to the original novelization. He owns the rights to the character, the story, the concept. So finally, after all these years, the Cooper family finally has the King Kong writes in their hands, this journey of a man who loved monkeys so much that he made a giant one. Apes. 
Yes, I'm sorry. Ape. Apes. <laughs> Gorillas. He loved simian creatures so much <laughs> that he made a giant version of one that he had one day wanted to fight Tarzan. Mm-hmm. And now it was finally in the hands of the Cooper estate. And then Universal offered him a lot of money and the Cooper estate immediately sold the rights to Universal. So by the end of 1976, Universal does own the future rights to King Kong, but the Paramount and Dino De Laurentiis production of King Kong does get to release on December 17th, 1976. Too much fanfare, Time Magazine cover, big marketing campaign, the whole shebang. You know, this was the big movie of the, of the, the, uh, the season. It was the big movie of Paramount's year. This was going to be their big, their big thing. De Laurentiis had a quote in that Time Magazine article where he said, nobody cried when Jaws died, but they're going to cry when my monkey dies. Mm-hmm. The intellectuals are going to love this movie because you know why? Because I don't give a crap. I'm going all in on this. Mm-hmm. So everybody was so eager to see this movie get made and the big fanfare for its 1976 release was here. And that's what I have to say. Awesome. About King Kong 1976. We got a lot of lawsuits. Class, this is classic Bonzilla. A lot of lawsuits, a lot of rights issues, a lot of special effects, all leading up to a movie with Jeff Bridges, Jessica Lange, and Charles Grodin. Let's do it. All right, let's make it work. Honestly, when I decided that King Kong was something I was interested in, one of the main reasons was because I was very interested. Not, I mean, I don't need an excuse to watch this movie. I, if I wanted to watch this movie, I wanted to watch this movie. But I, I just felt that this, again, was kind of those weird... Not, It's not even an outlier because it was a movie that was very hyped for its time and very major and you know had you know a major rising star with two Academy Award nominations attached to it, Jeff Bridges, and was you know the big paramount release of the season like which again if you think about the next year you know we're kind of a couple years away from that big release and you know being star trek and you know this was kind of like every year the studio would have to have its big release and now you know nowadays studios have kind of multiple big releases and not to say that paramount and, and other companies didn't have it in that day but there was kind of this fight where like well we need the big some you know one summer movie we need the, our big summer movie we need our big winter movie and for paramount this was this but I find this, you know, just the existence of this movie very interesting because it, it's a movie that of the movies that remake King Kong, 
it's very much always overshadowed by both the original and the Peter Jackson version. So when you think about King Kong getting remade, that Peter Jackson version is the first thing to come to mind, even though that, again, this was had a lot of press attention, had a lot of attention and marketing and buzz and excitement to it when it first released. Like this was a major release of 1976. So it was very interesting for me to want to see this movie and to dissect it and and see what this 70s version of Kong is, what this Dino De Laurentiis version of Kong is, uh, and, and what kind of how it fits into sort of this Kong legacy. So I, I, I was, I would say that this is one of the movies that really made me want to do the Bonzilla presents era as a whole. You know, it's also really funny about it growing up for me is the poster is very weird. Oh like yeah. With it, the, like with that, the, it, it's just weird. Cause it's like a, it's like an artist rendering of like the movie and it doesn't really look like the Kong that's in the movie. And, right. In the world, it's like these stepping on both world trade center towers. Right. And, Aesthetically, it doesn't really look like the movie. So fun fact though, it, this, it, it almost looks like a poster for one of the older movies really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but sorry, go ahead. What you were saying? I was going to say, fun fact: this poster is in Jerry's apartment on Seinfeld, yes, in season yeah. five. Um. So yeah. So that was all. That's another reason why, at least, just seeing it, like the visual cues of the movie, were lost on me for a while because I just didn't get any sense of of it. But yeah, when you mention it that way, that is pretty. You're you're one hundred percent correct. Where in many ways, this is the Kong movie the the major release kong that i would consider this to be part of like the major kong canon yes um that nobody talks about really and in fact i think the most i've heard people talk about it has been recently mm-hmm. because there's so much kaiju and kong love right now um to the point where i actually think is it shout factory is doing a blu-ray release of this yes i was going to mention that that it's coming out in a couple weeks may yeah. 11th um, um, so this may, I mean, to just cause we're on that topic and this may spoil my thoughts of it. I'll get the Blu-ray. I, uh, yeah. And, and then mostly because also I've seen the list of special features on the mm-hmm. Blu-ray and I'm like, yeah, I'll get it. Yeah. yeah. I'll oh, definitely yeah. get it. For sure. Um, yeah, because my experience with the movie is, is interesting because in many ways, fundamentally, it, like I kind of have the same broad feelings I do about it, uh, just from a story perspective and like in within the weeds of it as the first one, mm-hmm. because for better or for worse, it really it, it's the Kong plot again. Yeah, yeah it's like, the Kong it, plot it, with a couple of details just slightly changed. Yeah, and, and then really, and, and really just details. I mean, the a the a the a to b to c to d is pretty much all the same it's though they they go to an island looking for something they find kong and they bring him back and he runs around new york so and he he dies at the end in that way like my my biggest kind of like like, i guess criticism you would say about the movie is that it continues the icon and everything else about the movie or everything about the movie continues to be a slave to the iconic story Mm -hmm. Yeah, where it's like you know the movie for me never overcomes. You're just sitting there and watching the Kong story, like mm-hmm. it never quite over. And I'm not saying you can't tell the Kong story, um, but it just never escapes that you're just watching it. 
be told again. Right. Yes. It, it's kind of like, you know, one of like the concerns I had about like that animated Grinch movie was like, well, they're just going to make me watch the Grinch story over again. But but it gave me fun facts or, you know, a little gem. It gave like enough little sprinkles in there. I'm like, oh, OK, they changed this and that, and, you know, same story, but a little bit different and not even more stuff, just different stuff to chew on. Mm-hmm. And I don't know there if this movie quite gave me the additional things to chew on. That being said, the the pieces at play, like the game is the same, the board is the same, but the pieces they put on the board make this honestly potentially my preferred of the 3 times the story has been told. This is this is actually going to be an interesting discussion because I was having similar thoughts and I, I will serve full judgment because it has been um it has been a hot minute since I've seen the full Jackson movie. And it's I do, just so long. It is. <laughs> but I, I still I still want to give it kind of the shot. Like I I just want to give it the shot. But when I was watching this, I really found myself kind of digging the the tone and the style and sort of the look of the movie. I, I really just kind of dug a lot of elements of this. And I thought it was kind of, uh, in terms of the Kong story, it really is a gem in and of its own right. Yeah, there there is one thing, which we I know we'll get to eventually, but there is one absolute big thing that I think the Jackson Kong does for this story that none of the other Kongs do. And that is, I'll just kind of say it right here, is like, it, it just really deliver on you caring for Kong to the point of that death at the end is super tragic. Like mm-hmm. they like get you really emotionally invested in that. And I, I think this movie is definitely the ending is tragic, but I, I don't know, it, you know, when they kind of get to the end of like, no Kong, it's a, don't, don't go like, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't know if I, I get that there with yeah. it in either of these versions. So that is the one thing that the Jackson Kong does, I think far superior. The other thing, but all this said, and one of the things that watching this movie more so than anything really established how I feel about Kong is that I think now I I have to be honest and kind of put my own verdict in is that the monster verse Kong is probably my favorite in terms of just, how it's just what they're doing with that story and like you know you know and what they're doing with the whole you know tying it in with like the mythology and the the kaiju nature of old toho films is it's just it's just a little bit more my speed and i'm also like and when i watch those films i do get a little bit more invested and chew on the meat that they're that they're giving me yeah what I what 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 happens with these films, especially these first two, with this original one and then this one we're talking about today, is that I'm almost like with some of those other, with like the like the Skull Island. This is just for me personally, but with like the Skull Island version of those, I actually do get invested in those stories and then mm-hmm. in those movies. I don't know if I get invested in these Kong movies as much as I just enjoy watching them as a produced movie mm-hmm. yeah. I, I know that's a very weird thing to say but there's a level for why i like this one so much and because like the first one i kind of said it's like what are you going to say about mount rushmore 
it, yeah. it's 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 mount rushmore like there's almost like it, it, there's no like all the elements are the elements and you know the 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 animation work and all the vfx are top notch and spectacular and they're great you know with this one there there was a little bit more likable elements for me to grasp onto there was just a little bit more of an aware modern sensibility to it um but also i just really enjoyed the artifice of it i just really enjoyed that like you know they're putting on a production i loved like the 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 locations and just like the the big broad expansive locations but i also loved like that things felt kind of like a soundstage and they're putting on like a big movie production yeah and like and and there was definitely and then in in some ways it's funny and then when they get into the the city i don't know i just like it's a very specific time of creature feature that i just i i love the way it looks i love the way it feels and 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 it just speaks to me more um and, and i do get invested in in that nature of it into yeah. in the fantasy of it that was one of the things too i was really interested in because you know again like this is a series you know when we when we looked at Godzilla, for example, like we had, you know, the show era, we had very consistent, like, you know, from King Kong versus Godzilla on, we were having movies after year. And you, you know, I remember when we finally got to like Mecha Godzilla, you were really starting to realize, like, oh, there was the leaps in like cinematography and mm-hmm. the leaps in suit and design and special effects. And it was very interesting because with calling it very much, you have these large gaps in the, in the main ones, right? You have that 33 original that really focuses on the special effects of the stop motion. You have the 70s one that has like the on locations shooting and again, like the suit stuff. And then you have the Jackson one, which is very much, again, the mocap CG stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very interesting to compare again, just like how completely. That's a really good point. Like, that, yeah, how completely you... fast in, in, in a sense, like less than 100 years that like the way that cinema's progressed and the way that effects have progressed. But there was just something really fun about seeing them like, like the Island and seeing them out on the open ocean and like going through like kind of this jungle and kind of, again, the kind of the, the mixture of like sets and the, the actual Island stuff and the beach stuff and the suit stuff. And it was just kind of like really just kind of fun to watch again. You're right. Watch the kind of the production of this movie and think mm-hmm. about is it. like, we're making you know, because you got again, you got to think about yes, like that King Kong story had been legendary, but like even now, like I said, like now it's so you you we've had like the theme park rides and all the merchandise and you know multiple movies and like back then it was like you had this kind of legendary movie that kept cropping up and kept cropping up of this like RKO or release it or it'd be on TV, and now this company was like we're gonna make that movie bigger. And that you're seeing them like their their goal is to make that that movie but bigger and modern and you know of the 70s and it's it really yeah, is part of know, it, part of the fun watch of it is to kind of see them know that they're doing this and like put it out there. You know it's funny that you mentioned that because it, so bigger and modern are two interesting words to put in, in into this because in some ways it's definitely modern and I like that about it for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if it's bigger. Yeah, I mean, I think like that's, I think that's what they're going for. I think no, that's what I know, but it's like, it. but even like, there's a still a quiet, pared down nature just despite the production being big. Yeah, like so, I I thought about like 
at the end, like the fact that the end it has a lot of like, you know, monster tra- like going around and, you know, like people running out, like, you know, and crowds of people running around. But the whole third act just wasn't that. Like there were big swaths of the third act where, you know, they would be going to the Empire State Building and or the tr- World Trade Center and nobody was there. And then like it, it took a while for like that area to, to populate. And yeah. And uh, and it, in terms of watching it, it almost reminded me of the difference between some of the the hasty Godzilla films that I think are good versus the ones I think you know are great. And like what what separates a great hasty film for me are the ones that really get you invested in the story. So like the things like Destroya or Mothra, um, those. And then the and then the other ones are kind of good because like oh the craft is so immersive. Mm-hmm. So that's like the big thing. Like I really got immersed in the craft of everything probably more so than I got really immersed into any of like the, the fine details of the, of, of the movie, even though the modern sensibility that they added with all the characters, most of the characters, um, I just, I, I, I gravitated to a little bit more than the main cast of characters from the original film. Yeah. Well, for sure. I, again, like we were talking about like that 33, again, like I think it's simple mentions it's, it's a backlot production. It, it was very much, you know, again, like the casting of this is very deliberate and and, and the, the characters are very deliberate and how they're presented is very deliberate, which again also, is just kind of showcases just how, again, how cinema changes from 1933 to 1976. The way like that actors are portrayed and treated and, you know, and, and put on the screen is just so different. It's just a different atmosphere. Also, some ballsy things in the third act as well. Too. I can't wait. I can't wait to talk about them. I think I know so, what you're talking about. Yeah. So, so there's, so there's that. But like, yeah. I mean, in, in plot wise, it really is. You know, it, it it really is the same overall. But the, the the big thing is like the inciting incident of what what gets them there. It's not a film crew anymore. It's basically this guy who's trying to like, you know, score big in the oil gas race uh, going on at the time. And uh, he's like, Oh, there's like this untouched Island. And basically he just wants to go there and mine it for, you know, uh, resources. Yeah. For it's part of the uh, Pectrox oil company. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is the Charles Grodin character, Fred Wilson, who was great in the movie. Oh, he's such. So as I mentioned before, my big, association with Charles Grodin is he's the villain of the great Muppet caper, which I also, he's great in that movie too. He's really funny. Um, but one, this kind of really made me appreciate him just as an actor, because like when he plays Nikki holiday in the great Muppet caper, he's such like a snivelly whiny, like, you know, petulant man who falls in love with Miss piggy. And here he's also playing a very slimy character, but a very different version of a slimy character. And yeah, what I what I thought was interesting about him is like there were definitely ways that they could have made him more villainous mm-hmm. than he was. Um he's just kind of like a, you know, he he's like a he's like your jerk. He's like, you he's know, like, he's, yeah, he's the jerk like CEO type of person. Yeah. Like he's like, you know, he's not necessarily like the a villain, but he's kind of like his main thing is like you know, he wants the oil, yes, because like he works for this big company because he wants, you know, to get higher up on the ladder. And mm-hmm. he's like, okay, well, you know, once we find this island, like Shell and Exxon are going to be like knocking at our door for it because it's like we're going to be, you know, he's convinced that this island is the answer to like, 
his prayers of being like a big player in the oil industry and a big player at the Pectrox company. And he's put together this very secret mission, you know, and he like so much so that he's worried about like corporate spies on the boat. Like, like, you know, when he gets, you know, when he gets like Jeff Ridge is like, you know, he's just sneaks on the boat. He's when he finds him, it's like, you gotta be, you gotta be with shell. You gotta be with Exxon. Like, who are you with? You can't just be some, some guy who likes, you know, monkeys, which again, cause that's also fun. Cause we get the cold open to this. We get a cold open kind of where they're preparing this big ship, you know, somewhere in kind of the, the you know, South Asian Pacific. And we see like, you know, they're getting ready and the kind of what's the mysterious of this mission and all this sort of stuff. And meanwhile, we see like Jeff Bridges, have uh you know sneak on he like bribes the guard which i thought was fun like can i see some yeah, ID? the 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 efficiency in which this cold open starts i was i was a big fan of. right because he like he does the fun thing where he like show like he's like what's your id and he shows the security guard a big wad of money he accidentally drops it the security guard steps on it. he's like go on through mm-hmm. which i thought was fun and then the move that he makes and I, i'm sure it wasn't jeff bridges it was something but the move that he makes where he like he very quickly like gets to like this rope on the boat he like one motion like throws his bag onto the boat like perfectly and then starts like immediately like climbing this rope mm-hmm. as it like comes through it's just very again very efficient very much like we're getting into the movie we're introducing you to the jeff bridges's character we're introducing you into charles groden's character and sort of this this idea of this oil company into kind of the the john barry theme of the opening credits yeah and what i what i really liked about the character um, especially the Groden character was like he I mean he was just like you know he he's kind of like your standard unlikable CEO guy but I, I just found that you know they didn't I, I was just and I'm, I'm I already said this but they just didn't go out of their way to like he's always like mustache twirling and every single thing he does is like you know like the worst like you know ultimately like his priorities are what they are right but like you know, they make himself like, but not, yeah, but not like I was evil. expecting. I, yes, I was expecting like it was very easy for him to like be way more of a villain, like when they meet the villagers, for example. Right. But like, you know, but and and then, you know, and then he goes about like he's like, no, we got to go. We do have to go on this rescue mission. And like or like for or for instance, you think that, OK, well, this is a character. They're definitely going to make him a creep and slimy toward the our female character and they, and they really don't play that up either. And I think the other um, thing that, that helps is that they do also at very much points, make him kind of a goofball too. Yeah. Where, yeah. That's kind of like, what like it where, is. or he'll like, you know, when they approach the, when they, you know, when they approach the, this movie's version of that kind of the big wall or whatever, you know, and, and Jeff Bridges is like, Oh, this wall was repaired six months ago. And uh, you know, they immediately like Charles Jones, like this wall, let me get this, let me get something in your head you know, Mr. Bridges or Jack Prescott is the character's name. Let me get something in your head, Mr. Bridges. This here, it's an ancient ruin. And on the other side is nothing. There's nothing on the other side. And then immediately like the drum chant starts. And then like Jeff Bridges gets the line where it's like, yeah. And then, you know, there's also like a a whole German hall of, uh, you know, a mechanical band of nothing over there. Like we got to go. Like, But they do get them making like some of these goofball moments that also kind of just make him, like somewhat of a, like an easy to watch character. And, and that kind of leads to also kind of like a minor criticism though. I do have where, and it's not Jeff Bridges's fault. This is like the way it's written. Definitely. Because 
the way sometimes Jeff Bridges or other people react or treat this character is as if he is being this super villainous guy. There's some strong and, language thrown around at him, yes. Yeah, and, and I get it. Like, you know, you're not supposed to like him, but we actually also, this was another thing we kind of briefly talked about off, of mic, off mic too, but I, I'm not a huge fan of, I get it. He's like oil tycoon who's going, he, you know, he's he's just being slimy and he's pillaging the earth. And that's like, and I get it. It's like an inherently unlikable thing, but I, I don't love like the assumption that that's enough of a shorthand. Right. To like, just make him the villain. Well, and yeah. maybe that makes me an asshole, but I'm because not saying that it's just like, yeah, but if this guy, I mean, this guy also just for narrative purposes has to, actively act like the person that everybody's acting like towards him i i think so i i don't know does that make sense no it does yeah. because i think another thing that helps the charles groden character is that they don't make bridges like the anti-oil dude like even in his first scene it's like he's like i'm not anti-oil guy like i i i get it like right the, the easy version would have been like he sneaks onto the ship because like oh like you oil people are going to do something illegal. And, you know, I'm an environmentalist. Like, no, like Jeff Bridges character is literally just there for the, cause he's like, knows about this like Island and he's kind of a, a like a, uh, like a monkey hit. Like, yeah. Like what was expert. weird. What was weird about his character is that he kind of just seemed more of like a, like kind of like an explorer. Like he wants to find out of this legend. Like he didn't seem to, they introduce him as a character without an apparent allegiance yeah. But then, like, later on in the movie, he takes this hard turn, and it's like, you could not be so evil, but to eradicate, like, a a being like this off of the, you know, and I, and I get where he's coming from, but right. the language yeah. he used in that scene is very strong. I don't know right. if I want to repeat it here, but it was very strong. But, um... um but that that would be my only kind of like minor criticism yeah. about some of the writing. I do want to I do want to talk about if we go back that they do because even like when was again when like kind of these character introductions are fun because you get like kind of Groden again he's kind of like just ambitious, too ambitious CEO that's trying to get ahead and trying to keep this island, but even like when he's like going over like you know he he brings the whole crew in for this meeting, and then he's like having like fun like he's having jokes with the crew you know about like the you know what he's about to show and he showcases like you know this kind of island and like it's kind of shrouded in fog and this picture was taken you know you know years ago in the 19 like 30s or 40s and this picture was taken 6 days ago you know it's like the same fog the same fog bank and all that sort of stuff so i think like like you kind of showcase he does get to have like some sort of repertoire with his crew and then you have jeff bridges come in all like quint style and like right. basically it's like oh actually these are the legends that have been through history about this island like there's this there's this one that was like censored by the Holy Roman Empire. There's like this other one where we found an abandoned boat with like a bloody message on it about like the the, the marriage to a god or something like that. And he's like, and there's apparently also like a sunken Japanese ship uh, yeah, that sent out a that little bit, that, yeah, that sent out a bottle. And I'm still trying to find that one. And that's right. when that's when uh, Groden thinks he's like he has to be a spy. That there's there's no reason like. There's no reason you would just come on the ship to see this island with this legendary beast. You have to be an oil spy. So they sent him to the brig. Um, you know what? You know what though? What I was just thinking about. It, it, it's hard to get emotionally. I mean, it's 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 fun to it, 
it's fun to enjoy because the characters are playing up the role and like yeah. Roden's great in it. Like he, he's fun to see and I, and he's a great character, but like, it's, it's hard to get emotionally invested in like, this is a villain that you should not like because like, there's just the thing about the Kong story, if yeah. it's not played well, or if you don't put enough attention into it, where there's just kind of like this passive ethical morality to the mm -hmm. whole thing where yeah, they're like the things that are happening or there are technically right and technically wrong things, but like the details of it kind of undercut that a little bit. Yeah. So like for the biggest thing is like, it's hard to emotionally hate this guy when everybody seems to kind of like at the end of the day, treat all of his antics with, ah, whatever, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> hey, no, it's true. It's true. Nobody but, seems but, to put up a fight with anything of what he's doing until, and well, until, until it's they, too late <laughs> until, uh, until he takes Kong off the Island. And then that's when everybody kind of has uh... yeah, but even then, like it takes up until the night of the tragedy for like Jeff Bridges, like, no, I'm putting my foot down now, dude, it's too late. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. like Kong is already enslaved. The thing is happening that night. And then, like, you had the chance on the boat. Like, for a second, I thought, like, was this, like, a reshoot or a rewrite or something? So that that's kind of my 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 criticism about the storytelling a right bit. but i i but I, I agree i still think that there are moments that with especially that there's just again a fun to having those characters you know on screen so, so what did you think about jessica lang um <laughs> well in, in terms of like her acting skills or in terms of her character uh i don't know all i'll say is that was my first oh no of the movie. Oh, like when she first appeared? Yeah, when she first appeared, I was like, oh no. Here, I mean, again, you got to consider that the, that De Laurentiis literally pulled her off the runway to be in this movie. So, listen, I'm very happy for her that she, you know, she's got to win an Academy Award eventually and, and be an Emmy winning and nominated person. Like, she definitely improved her craft from this, is what I'll say. For, for a first time ever acting, you know, this is a big one to do. Um, it's interesting though, because in terms of that, yeah, I, th I don't think the acting was like perfect by any means, but there were, as the movie went on, there were aspects of the character that I thought like were kind of fun. I, I agree because I actually think that there is room and some value to a charmingly ditzy character, which is yes. kind of like what she's going for. Yeah. And you know, they don't make her dumb. That's like the thing. She's not stupid and she's not dumb, but they, they kind of make her like, you know, more of a, a carefree, fun attitude. And the fact that, and thankfully what I liked about the movie is like, nobody is seemingly taking advantage of that. Everybody is like on the up and up. Everybody seems like a good guy, even like mm -hmm. the, the less like, you know, even our bad guys, like, you know, you know, uh, a gentleman, like uh, you know, to her. Um, and you know, and then they, you know, they're, they kind of get in and out their jokes about like, oh, it's a woman on board. And, you know, so they, they get that away, but so there's value to that, but I don't know. I just don't know if she pulled it off. Yeah. Especially in the, in, in their initial appearances. I think it's, I think it gets better as the movie goes on, to be honest. I think that it's kind of like those initial appearances are the roughest though. 
her when she's explaining her whole backstory oh yeah yeah. when yeah. you really think about like what she's saying it kind of gets so basically yeah yeah she <laughs> is so they so earlier in the movie there's like a big storm on board and they hear like kind of this sos call from some yacht and then later when jeff bridges is being detained because they you know charles Grodin thinks he's the spy he kind of suddenly he spots her out in the horizon. Like there's something out there. Someone's out there. And then finally he gets like a guy who has binoculars and they see this woman on the boat and they finally like get her, you know, up. And there's also a great line before this, where uh, again, the bridges, you know, Groden gets like all the information on bridges. And I just love that. Like the name, like he's like, his partner's like, well, the Navy records check out. He's clean. There's nothing on him. <laughs> and then, like, Grodin is like, you know, it's like, you know, I have some use for him. So he goes grab Bridges. He's like, what you did before you got into, like, kind of this history and this explorer thing, you did have some medical knowledge, don't you? It's like, yeah, no, he did. So then he's like, though, then they're like going up to Jessica Lane's room to, like, you know, make sure she's okay and alive and everything. And I, this this line where it's like, Jeff Bridges is like, well, how do you know all this about, like, how did you know I had a medical history? It's like, and Grodin's like, I, I have ways of finding out things. I know that I know the year, the date, the time that you learned to potty train. Like, like he just like, is, I know everything about you that there ever is to know. So eventually Lang comes up and she eventually explains that she was on a boat filming a movie because she wants to be an actress. And yes, her name is Dewan, not Dawn. Because she flipped the W and the A to make her more memorable. So her name is Dewan. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing is that she she's on this boat to make a movie. She didn't want to watch the movie that all the guys on the ship were watching. And all the movie that the guys on the ship were watching on Below Decks was the infamous porno of the 1970s, Deep Throat. And in fact, that um, she mentions Harry and Harry was the star of the actual movie Deep Throat. So it's implied mm -hmm. that she was brought on this board to make a porno. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to watch the movie. So she went on top deck and was basically blown off and the ship exploded behind her. At what point she says, have you ever been saved by Deep Throat? To what end? Why? Like, why? Why is that? Like, that was my, my this whole bit was my first red flag of the movie it's a it's a it's I, it's, it's just a, so strange it's a very 70s slash it's sort of a very and i there are simple bit lorenzo simple jr bits in this movie i like but that's also a very lorenzo simple jr being very meta type of like referential thing that he would do in very much his more comedic works now, the Lorenzo Semple Jr. stuff I liked in this movie were all the kind of ridiculous lines of crazy foreshadowing of Kong that he puts in. I loved all of these. Like, like which one? Like there's two of them that come to mind. One is when Dwan, they're getting on the boat and is like, you know what? I had my horoscope read uh, on, you know, one, one, before I left the Hong Kong. And it said that I would cross the sea to meet the biggest person in my life, you know, and then the other one, the one I love the most, um, I think I, I think I may know, is yeah. when Charles they, they land on the beach. And first of all, before I get to oh, that, I, I know, I know, I know what you're gonna say. Yeah. Before, I, before I get to my other point, I was gonna say this. So they land on the beach, 
and like they're all like road and it's like everybody's stepping off and enjoying. By the way, like, great scenery. Oh, absolutely, beach. absolutely. Awesome. I also loved the way that they shot like the fog. Yeah, like there's like that side shot where like you see the ship and you see just the distinct fog. Like it's just like really like because it's like the blue sky and then there's like the big sh- the big oil ship, some water in between, and then this big cloud of white. It looks really nice. So anyway, they land on the beach and everybody's kind of excited. They're going to find this oil like Jeff Bridges is going to see if this legendary beast exists. And then Charles Grodin, there's just this big shot where he's walking like, you know, the camera's kind of like looking up at him. And he's like, I don't want anybody to get eaten alive. Bring out the mosquito spray. (laughs) And I'm those are great. Those are all the the, the Lorenzo Semple isms that I loved. I loved all of those. And there's like a couple others, too, I think. No, that was that that was great. I I did appreciate them recreating the co- the slight comical nature of the of them meeting the natives. Mm-hmm. Like I love that they kind of kept this like the natives like kind of like see them and there's almost this attitude. It's like, hey, what what what's up? What are you doing here? And then they're like, uh oh, <laughs> like it's not. Yeah, because they're having this whole conversation about the natives, like and. You know, and Jeff Bridges is, you know, kind of explaining everything. So there's that sort of fun stuff. And because it's also it's like, you know, they think that they see oil. So there's that aspect of it as well. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and then that I was actually surprised, like down to it was really funny what they directly adapted mm-hmm. when, when when watching this, which is fun because at the time they're like, oh, yeah, let's like do this little bit. Let's do this little bit. Like, let's stay away from like the obvious things, but let's keep this. So, for instance, they do keep the plot point of like, you know, they see they see Dwan and they're like, oh, well, you know, we want to sacrifice her and we'll trade you six of our women, six of our women for her. And, you know, I got into the baggage of that on the last Kong movie we did, so I won't get yeah. into that. Um, but but I, it was interesting. And then, like I said, like that was a chance where the guy could have grown's character could have easily been like, well, just shoot him. And, but they didn't do that. Like, or like he tries to like, Oh, like tell him I want the oil. So like, tell him like they can, right, you know, yeah, have her. Just, like, yeah, yeah. But they, but no, no, he's like, no, like he literally, <laughs> in, <used> fact, <laughs> in fact, he was, he was much more willing to like go through the proper channels of it. It's like, all right, so we're going to have to sign a peace treaty. <laughs> it's like, what do we got? We, we got to offer him something on the boat. So he, yeah. he wants to keep it on the up and up which i thought was really funny <laughs> but it's kind of right it's what makes him kind of like more of a buffoonish antagonist that like i i thought that was really funny where he's like oh we'll, we'll just draft up uh some sort of treaty or something and he makes a joke about like you know going to the un later too or he's just like yeah, yeah. we bring it to the un like we'll do yeah. that so well, well, well yeah we'll, we'll we'll sort this all out later uh i thought uh, yeah so they they also uh, so they basically kind of escape the natives and go back to the boat. And they also keep oh, the- and and you know what I will say? Sorry to interrupt, but I will say that I did, for the most part, buy a little bit more the the romance, a little bit. Oh, At but- least I I tracked it better. Oh, between like bridge, but between like Jack Prescott and Dewan, you yes, mean? yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. But, but because again, it's like all of that stuff is given just the slightest more attention, uh, and also the Jeff Bridges character doesn't lead off with like, I hate women like, and then like falls in love. Like, yeah. And they, and they don't, he's not part of the mission. So they're, they've kind of established that he does kind of have this like 
independent dorkiness to mm-hmm. him a little bit. Yeah, and... I thought I thought their conversation when she's like playing on like that kind of the boat dock at the bottom before she gets kidnapped. Yeah, yeah. Their, that conversation was kind of a nice back and forth of just flirting and like oh like oh you know oh yeah yeah where he's yeah. like oh it'd be a shame to see you here if I get back. He's like because I thought you know you'd be we'd be you'd be waiting for me to stop by your your room or something and and I just thought it was like. That that is a line that could have gone so wrong. Yeah, but they they made it but, work. It was but, and, charming. And, and I mean, it's, it's because Bridges kind of is a great performer, and I think like the you know he kind of brings sort of that sort of dorkiness yeah out in the character. Also, he has fantastic hair in this movie. I really yes. yeah, yeah he does. Hair. Um, so, so they keep yeah. the yeah. So the natives just again the same. So they they just they uh they bring their canoe out and they just basically grab her right away and they bring her back to the island jeff bridges notices that they left like the 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 bracelet or whatever so they they go back and we get the basically this film's version of the big sacrifice to kong scene and then introduced to kong and then and this is where i'll just say the the kong vfx and just the general aspect of the vfx work incredible yeah like just phenomenal like the the suit, the way in which Kong, it just looks great. And the seamless nature of how they make him seem big and with like his surroundings and everything, with like the sets and everything, just the incredible work. And, 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 and it really is like, again, like that, one of the iconic nature, one of the iconic scenes of that first movie is that same scene where she's being tied up on the thing. And I felt that they did a good job of making it in terms of those things that make it bigger. Like it's the big production of like the lead up, you know, she's being tied down. She's been drugged, you know, she's kind of tied up to the thing and you get the big appearance of Kong through the trees and the big first appearance of the suit. Like I thought it was really like, you know, very nice kind of build up to that moment. And I agree. I thought that the Kong suit looked great. I thought that the use of the different kind of emotional heads and the Mm -hmm. way that the heads moved was very natural and, you know, again, it's a very different type of suit than like, you know, like the Godzilla suits we've seen. It's very much like they're trying to present to you that this is Kong. Um, yeah, and it's a little different. It's it's more of a humanoid thing. So you so the needs of it are a little bit different than a Godzilla suit. But right. yeah, um, but just excellent work. Like, I mean, it, it, it's it really is the reason you watch the movie in, in, mm-hmm. in some ways is just to see how phenomenal they brought to life and then i i I believe and frankly out of the original i i kind of consider like the kong like the trilogy of kong movies where it's just like that story of like on the the, island then back to new york the the original and the two like remakes of this yeah and i i think this is easily my favorite of the three just from a a technical special effects level i think it's it's super Um, impressive and again when you have kind of those two legendary vfx legends i think like they they worked well together even if that big mechanical one they wanted to use didn't necessarily work like they worked together to make this suit look great yeah so i'm glad yeah uh so there's there's only one shot where it looks where and it's not the suit's fault there's there's a shot toward the end of the movie where they cut to a wide shot Mm -hmm. and i guess there's like it's like more of like a mechanical standee kong it, yeah, that might have been one of the mechanical like it looked it looked yeah. like garbage. And then that's I was which, like which is, it, which is why they really didn't use the mechanical one at uh, all. 
so bad. And then like, I'm like, oh, dude, oh, that was one cut. You could have just cut it out with one cut because yeah. everything else is so, but it's so seamless and so perfect. And the, you know, there, there are certain character things I'm not quite fond of, but that's more into in the, when you get into the story, but just the seamless, incredible nature of the special effects is so good. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I, I was very pleasantly surprised by just how much it held up. Like, just like that first scene when, you know, he's out in the clearing with Dewan and he's like looking down on her and there's this, it's just like this quiet moment and just the actual, the, the, the technology, the performance on, on Kong is great and whatnot, but then just the seamless, like how then they cut to like his hand next to her and everything. And, and all those little kind of like, cinematic tricks mm-hmm. um still some pretty bad matte work and and green screen work um but you know that is what it is that's a, yeah that's so much of the time yeah yeah uh but that um but uh but all that stuff was just it, just, it left me speechless watching yeah, it for sure um i agree uh so you know, eventually, you know, again, Bridges has, has gotten the cavalry and, and everybody, and they go back to the island and they scare off the natives with the flares. Oh, you know what I hated? I did not like this. I did not like, and he's like, he says something along the lines of, he's like, what? it's like, what'd you, it's like, oh, because they, they, what'd you the, think it was a guy, would you think we yeah, were going to see it, a guy in a giant monkey suit or something? Well, no, because he, because they go past the wall, the big wall, right. mm-hmm. and Croton. So they're like trying to figure out what happened to Duan, and then Groden falls into one of Kong's footprints, and he's like, "I fell in this blasted hole." He's and then Jeff Bridges is like, "That's no hole," and he's like, "There's got to be a giant." He's like basically like, "There's got to be a giant monkey out there," and then Groden's still like, "This is ridiculous. There's got to be no. There's no such thing. It's just a legend. It's just." Oh, hold on! I got to say this, and I got to say the other line I remember. Um, so then he's like. And then, no, because he says, like, what do you think made this footprint? A guy in a monkey suit, which... Didn't like it. Yeah. Didn't like it. You can't... But... You can't do it if it's a guy in a monkey suit. Right. I, I'm pretty sure that line was written when they thought that the mechanical suit was going to be more used. And then, obviously, it kind of stayed in. But Guess what? Line, wait. Cut it out. There's a line earlier I completely forgot, but I need to mention, where... Uh, where, you know initially this is when like he's trying to convince Groden like something's happening you know like to do or he's trying to convince Groden on the boat that like this giant monkey thing exists and it's like you heard them chanting Kong 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 like Jeff Bridges is like that's like there, there's something out there there's something that they're giving it to and then Groden's character is like that's just some hokey religion it's an excuse for a priest to wear a monkey mask and then get laid <laughs> That was awesome. Yeah, that that was, was I was like that. That was, was legitimately funny. Yeah, it's like it was great. Uh, so then Bridges and like the captain, and a couple others go out to save uh, uh, Dewan and kind of find her. While Groden kind of stays behind, and it's kind of this is where they're kind of getting to like you know Groden and or sorry Bridges and the captain are kind of doing the big trekking thing. Meanwhile, like Groden's standing on a tent, like under a tent, like drinking the drinking like you know like a beer or something at at the at the beach being all like yeah go get her like you gotta you gotta find her there was a great line i don't know if it's exactly here or it might be a little bit later when he's talking about so the other thing is he's still you know grown still obsessed with the oil and 
you know, he's telling them like, while you're out there looking for Dewan, set these seismic charges so we can kind of, you know, see what's underneath the ground. And like, if there's oil down there and then like Bridges, like kind of gets on his case, like, dude, there's like, I, what, what he said, he says, Bridges says, a girl is out there being like harassed by some turned on ape. And then, you know, and then Groden responds like in the most sarcastic voice. He's like, listen, you know, we all, we all understand <laughs> that like, you know, this is a big deal. We got to save this girl, but we are in a national energy crisis. And some, <laughs> sometimes we got to put the larger world above our selfish needs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he was so great. I loved him. He was awesome. And then, cause there's another thing where it's like, Hey, like, are you going to have someone on like, they're about to go to sleep and like Bridges, like, are you going to have someone watching the radar? Like to make sure that we're not being attacked. Cause early in the movie, they, they think that this like blip on the radar, it's a glitch when we like, no, it's Kong. And then Groden's like, yes, if the radar picks up any 15 foot furry things, we'll definitely let you know. Like, yeah, Groden's great in this movie. Yeah, he he is he is awesome. I, I will say though, like this this is where they just smash that autopilot button for yeah, most it, of the movie there's, because there's, they, there's a couple things that one like you know we do get you know because basically now the movie is we're going between what's happening with Dewan and Kong and then this adventure to go find her, and so the thing is with the Dewan and Kong stuff, it is a more extended more kind of fleshed out version of what everybody thinks happens in the first King Kong. Like this is the one where you kind of see there's sort of like some sort of Kong has some sort of actual fascination with her and they kind of form some relationship. I did like their first scene where he, she's kind of grabbed. And then I like that she starts just, I love this scene where she starts like just finally like punching his nose mm -hmm. and they just show it from the side and Kong just looks completely confused. Mm -hmm. Like none of the women he's ever had in his hands has ever done. He's like, what, what are you doing? And then, you know, Lang's character is like, come on, eat me. Come on. Don't you want to eat me? Like, come do it. Like, you know, like do it. Come on, do it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. But no. And then her last line is like, choke on me. Like, it's just like, do that. And then, you know, then she's like, you know, regrets that. And she's trying to appease him. And she's like, doesn't, she's, doesn't she call him like some sort of like chauvinist at one oh, point? Oh, wait. Which yeah. I I th was yeah really it's funny. like you chauvinist pig ape. Like, yeah. 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 Like yeah. Because yeah, that's the whole line. You chauvinist pig ape. Come on, eat me. Come on, choke on me. And then she like, you know, she's punching Kong Chanel and Kong looks confused. Then she immediately regrets it. And like, because she's, you know, been into like horoscopes and stuff. And he's like, Oh, uh, are you into horoscopes? I I'm a Libra. What are you? Oh, are you like a Gemini? Oh, like I, of course you are. <laughs> that was kind of and, and and that's and that's all great. I, I don't. I just don't know if the movie then follows up properly to like really get you to connect with the two. Yeah, because that's great. What's not so great is when King Kong turns into Creepy Kong. Did not like this one bit. Did no, absolutely. I did not like this at all. <laughs> I mean, other than like, okay, yeah, like the suit, like the, this is where. All right, the suit is too good because you have like Kong just kind of like weirdly, like you know, taking off her like clothes, and he and it cuts to like the creepiest kong reaction where there's a couple times where kong just like is like grabbing at her and then his look is like <laughs> i was like no absolutely not yeah it was do a little weird like, do not like those those scenes at all 
Um, and then meanwhile, you have this kind of the, 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 the expedition through the, you know, the rest of the island. And there is the thing is, again, like I, I generally like the movies all, but there is something missing when there's like not another like creature encounter when it's just them like kind of walking. And then their big thing is that they're on like a log bridge. And then that's when Kong finally shows up and shakes them all. Like, well, there see, is- that, that's the thing. It's like it's very much like the original film where once she gets kidnapped, there's really not a character thing that happens until they're back on the boat. Mm hmm. Really? I mean, and then the only thing that kind of like livens it up is Gro is Groden. Yeah. It's like when they go even, back to him. Because then, yeah, because we get, going so on. they're going up and I'll talk about the log bridge scene in a second, but they're going back to him. And then basically they finally get to test this oil and it's discovered that yes, it is oil, but it's not properly like, it's not properly oil. Like it's not like cooked enough that it needs another like hundred thousand years to become like usable oil. So Grodin is like, yeah, I thought he was like, it was funny where he's like, ah, you know, just a, you know, just a few ticks on the geological calendar or something Right, yeah, like his, that. his yeah. buddy's like, get a funny well, you know, geological like, clock. Well, because his friend's kind of being a dick, I, his yeah. friend's being more of a dick because he's like, oh, it's, it, it'll be oil, all right. Like, it's, it's like, yes, we've done it. Like, I told those people at the board meeting, like, that I was going to get to this. Like, as I said, it will be oil. Like, he misleads the guy so much. And he's like, Oh, it just needs a little more time to cook. He's like, how long? Yeah, you're right. He's like, a couple of tucks on the geological clock, about 100,000 years or so. Uh, and then, you know, it's like, but right now you'd be better putting mule piss in your Chevrolet than this stuff. So Groden's all like disappointed. And he's going to go back and be fired or be demoted and be laughed at. And then like the actual captain or, uh, yeah, because it's the first mate with Jeff Bridges. So the actual captain comes up is like, well, so, you know, why don't you, why don't you like bring back that Kong creature, right? Like, you, you could make it what an advertising campaign that would be like, look at the lengths we go to, to bring you your oil here at Petrox. And then, and Groan still doesn't necessarily believe in it, but he's kind of like, wait a minute, like the, the, I, the gears are churning. So he's basically like now kind of formulating this plan to kind of keep Kong alive. Meanwhile. Yeah. The, the crew finally gets on this log bridge. Kong appears and he like shakes them all off the log bridge, which is fine. Uh, and then Jeff finally, makes it to Dwan when Kong is being attacked by a giant snake, which is, which big, is great, which, which is, is awesome. also great. Yeah. Which is also great. great. And also at a point where Jeff Bridges gets to take off his shirt. Of course. And, you know, looking very muscular there in this, in the seventies era, looking very muscular and lean. Um, so eventually like they, and, and the other thing about all this that I, 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 I failed to mention is like, they, they do, make kong like he feels like a scary physical threat yes i, I feel yeah like, especially like when you go into that snake fight and that stuff when he's like being choked yeah and but stuff. even when he's like you know when he's thrashing around or he's chasing after people i, I think that the movie convincingly and maybe this is just tonally the movie but it convincingly sells the idea that like this is a dangerous creature as opposed to like the original one where it was kind of dopey sometimes or it was kind of silly other times this one was like oh yeah you don't want to get on this thing's bad side like you know just you know when he's breaking down like the the giant door like the the yes the, the native oh door that was, was great in- incredible yeah it was great that that i was you know, because again, like that's another thing from the original film. Like that's another one of the scenes that's so iconic is Kong bursting through like the native wall. 
And in this one, they really just showcase Kong just beating at this wall, beating at this wall. Like, and just the way that they cut it together, it just showcases Kong's strength and determination and power. And it was like really, really effective. And, and the thing about the creature, what what they picked out that's so one of the craziest things about like just apes, like and apes and monkeys and all of them is like the look of like apes can go from such like gentle giants to just like, but when they get angry, it's scary. Oh yes, like, yes, yes. And and I thought like, and then especially when you translate that to creature design, uh, especially with somebody like Kong, like that. All right, that kind of soft, likable, lovable look. And then when it transitions into like when he roars and 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 the roar itself was actually I, I really liked as well. Um, it, it just delivers a scary creature. Yes. Uh, so yeah. So basically, Kong, as we mentioned, chases Jeff Bridges and and Jessica Lang all the way back to the wall. He bursts. You know, they they kind of get through and they burst him across. And then we we we've seen the results of Groden's plan to capture Kong is he built a giant hole for Kong to fall in when he burst through the wall. And then I like that. Actually. They use, they basically use like, uh, you know, um, what's it called? Uh, like chloroform. They use chloroform, like chloroform yeah. uh, till they, they, uh, to like, they pour it in and basically knock Kong out to like mm-hmm. take him on the boat. First of all, that shot of Kong falling in the hole was great too, because mm-hmm. it's just the side shot where he bursts through the wall in its big moment, and he steps, and you just see him fall flat like into the earth. And then, yeah, and then they basically, you know, knock him out. And then, in the sense, you know, Groden, uh, you know, Groden's character was failed to get the oil, but now he has captured the giant monkey and will use him as a marketing tool for the Petrox Oil Company. Mm-hmm. And so this is where we get our, again, the kind of the first big fight where, um, you know, Groden is basically like sweet talking everybody where it's like, listen, like Jeff Bridges, you were, this, you were just this professor. Now you're going to be this handler for this world famous Kong, you know, Jessica Lang, you're going to, you're going to be the star you were meant to be. You're going to be the new star of the Petrox oil company. We have the contract here. And then this is where they have their first sort of, you know, uh, ideas of, you know, backing out of this because and, you know. and this is why the story of king kong is tricky because really there this is the first time that the movie is making good on any type of this is what it's about you know what i mean yeah. and it's tricky because you're you're more than halfway through the film right so it, it, and it's interesting to me because they're throwing in all of these elements like so for instance now they're throwing in the element where they're really i mean this was a little bit established before but now they're going to test the jeff bridges character a little bit but now you're adding this element of like all right well dewan like her whole goal now is like you know she wants to be a star so let's bring that into play Mm -hmm. and like how's that going to fit into the themes and then now we're dealing into like okay now we're actually um you know, uh, defiling nature in a way. And then there's like this, also this really weird thing where the, where it's an interesting concept where Jeff Bridges, like, is it such a good idea? You took Kong off of the Island and you've basically taken away their faith and their God and years they'll be, all be drunks. And I'm like, 
Which no, is like interesting. Sorry, he says ahead. he says deadbeat drunks. Deadbeat drunks. If you, you return to that island, you'll find those natives a bunch of deadbeat drunks because you took away their god. Which is like it was like I get that's an interesting idea, but it was such a random moment of weird insight that I don't think the movie had a grasp on up until that right. point. You also so, have a you have that also, was a little out of but you also have a line right before that where like when the introduce it is it's like. Yeah, why don't you ask those natives what they think? It's like actually those natives are going to be pretty upset about it. Like they 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 just lost something important to them. And then Groton's like like leprosy. <laughs> like it's just like Jesus Christ. But it's also like, but again, like how, like this is like one of those things. Like, well, Jeff Bridges, you don't know that. Like, what makes you like? It's like we didn't establish in the movie that this is the relationship that they had with this thing. Right. Like as far as we know, it was one of danger like you know so it was right like it's like the whole i guess again what they're going for is like bridges was on this you know was snuck on this boat just for this kind of the intellectual concept like oh what if this island did exist and this beast did exist and now like that they're coming back is like you know he's you're supposed to think like they've gone too far but there is like again like you kind of need a little bit just a little bit more of a step between that again it's the same type of ethical interventionist questions that kong skull island does bring up Mm-hmm. and actually makes sense in that movie mm-hmm. whereas this is just kind of like a it's like a point that's brought up but I, to what end ultimately like you know mm-hmm. um i think it's all fair yeah so so there's that and then so then yeah they so finally you know we're getting more stuff with um also i like that they that when they introduce kong in the cell they pan out at the beginning of the scene and then Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lang are just playing backgammon, like on yeah. the deck. Yeah, I thought that was fun. But anyway, so later, Jeff Bridges and, and Jessica Lang, they are flirting again, and they're actually going to do the deed when Kong starts really going crazy because it's like, you know, he's, you know, realizes he's stuck in there. Love this shot of Kong banging against the side. Yes. And then you just cut to a guy in bed and he flies out of bed. Again, awesome. shows showcases the power and the danger of Kong. And eventually they do the sort of thing where, you know, she's about the bone Jeff Bridges. And then Jessica's like, no, Kong needs me. And then, you know, she climbs down into, you know, she falls into Kong's um, cell and basically like, no she 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 falls she falls yes that's what yeah yeah. she falls she falls into kong's cell and if she he eventually like she eventually calms him down yeah yeah i mean and it's 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 good and it's it's fun though i know like i know like groden's probably out of line by saying like oh like you know he he was he was gonna like this this is a monkey rapist like you know that's probably out of line yeah but also like Again, it's still doing this thing where it's like, yeah, but Kong's not like also like a saint either. Like no. he is still stealing people and ripping off their dresses. Like he's not yeah. a good guy. No, <laughs> so I was gonna say about this sort of the that kind of calm down scene thing is like what I I did like the effects in that one too because you again mm-hmm. you get the big stuff with Jessica laying in, in comparison to Kong and you really see Kong sort of again just the way they use the different masks and the faces you really see Kong's emotions in kind of seeing Lang and seeing Duan and sort of how he calms down and how he considers like, Oh, well, at least my girl's here. Like at least this person I care about is here. Also love the wide shot of, of Duan climbing up that really long ladder. Like, like as if she was in like snake yeah, eater. Yeah. But it was like a nice shot, but it's like, 
again, and I and I hate to be the negative Nancy on this, but it's no, like it's just hey. funny because they're like, she's like, ah, uh, like I don't like it's like don't worry, Kong, like it's like it's fine. We're we're taking you to be a star, and and in retrospect, seeing where the film ends up, like that kind of puts all those scenes a little bit more into perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I still think it could have been handled a little bit better in terms yeah. of like, I, but I, I to do... have some moral, not moral, but to have some clarity on what the emotional direction of this, of the story is supposed to yeah. be, I think would have gone a long way. But I, again, I do have an appreciation that they tried to kind of make it bigger, sure, especially sure, sure. in comparison to the original. So they finally get back to New York and they do this thing again. They do the thing we mentioned where, uh, you know, Jeff Bridges quits at the last minute. Dewan decides that she's going to go through it. And then we get to the big Petrox presentation. This, I absolutely this was great. loved. So basically, instead of being in kind of this big Broadway theater, what they do is it's this big, you know, the big Petrox oil company is having this big, the big presentation of Kong. And it's like this being broadcast all around the world. And it's sponsored by Petrox and Petrox oil is the best. But what they do is they essentially recreate all the elements of the island, but branded as Petrox. So like the, the you got like the wall from the island, but it's all like the red and white and blue colors of the Petrox. Kong is comes out in a giant um, like a gas tank, like from, like from a gas station tank. And, and, they still do the like the natives bring her up and tire, but it's all in like tinsel and like you know, kind of like bo- feather boas and stuff like that. I just love that this was so much like this was so much like Groden came back and brought this to a focus group of like this is like let's do what we saw on the island, but like let's make it all Petrox. It just reeks of just that kind of corporate, corporate like, like uh, the what's the word I'm looking for, like that corporate soullessness of just like we, we went on this adventure with these real people and these real natives, but we're basically bastardizing all of this just for a marketing campaign. I really like this, honestly. Yeah. Whereas I'm maybe a little bit critical about like, like storytelling about some of these ideas. What I loved about this entire third act was like, it just viscerally made you feel what it was going for. Mm -hmm. So all the things you mentioned were great. The thing that did it for me was the, okay, so they then they unveil Kong. And not only is he like, you know, uh, like in a little cage and he's like shackled in there, but they put a crown on him too. Yes. I was like, that's so gross. Uh-huh. That's so gross. And it, and, and it, it led to another super gross, but also hilarious Grodin line. Where he's like, "Behold the power of Kong and Petrox." <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I was like, "That, that's a." But yeah, I, I was like, and then just, and then the Nate, and then you know, there are little things, and this is also a running thing that happens throughout the end too, where it's like, the the crowd, the paparazzi doesn't even wait; they just like go and like violently swarm her for pictures and everything. So they just. The movie just really, really, um, it just captures how gross that, like, mm-hmm. like you know, that uh, that corporate that corporatization and you know, kind of just that. 
not celeb culture, but just like that whole like, oh, like the the lights and like, let's get like all the media on it and right. everything. It just, yeah. oh, you fell it. And it was just, it, it was just, yeah, that was the most the... emotionally resonant part of the movie. Yeah, I, I really just liked the concept of that whole sequence and the way they kind of translated it. I thought that was really clever and really cool. So, but basically we get the kind of, you know, the moment where, you know, the paparazzi are all kind of going around her and Kong gets upset that, you know, they, they, they're attacking her. I get just a, like one last Groden bit that was great, where it's just again kind of calling back to his moment on the island where you know Kong basically starts breaking from the cage. He breaks the cage apart, like he rips off like his you know his handcuffs essentially, and Groden's just standing there, kind of in shock and like trying to figure out what to say. And he's like, "Don't worry, his feet are still shackled. His feet are still shackled." And then Kong immediately like steps out and starts like, you know, rampaging. And it's just like at that point, Groden has nowhere to go. Um, so, you know, then everybody kind of freaks out. We get the kind of big Kong moment. Groden gets stepped on, um, which apparently, allegedly, according to Groden's biography, his autobiography was he was meant to survive and have like one other scene in the movie where he got to escape. But then audience wanted to see his character die. So they re-edited it to uh, be stomped on. And this is where we get, you know, this movie's version of Kong rampaging through New York. Um, there's a couple of choice moments throughout this this mm-hmm. third act. Mm-hmm. The one that immediately comes to mind is so Bridges grabs Jessica Lang and they are basically running off and they 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 hop on the train and then they do kind of a also a recreation of a bit from the first movie where. Kong basically stops the train, like rips up the track and everything like that. It's like going through the train car to like find, you know, Jessica Lang. And he picks up a woman that is in a similar dress, mm-hmm. but like not Jessica Lang, because Jessica Lang and Jeff Bridges get to escape. And he picks her up, and you just see this wide shot of him like look at her and then just toss this random woman away, just like like callously, just like murdering that woman, which was kind of great too. Um so there's just chaos in the city. You know, again, Kong's just comping around, you know, all that sort of stuff. Eventually, you know, I also kind of like this little moment between the characters where, like, they're basically in this abandoned part of town, Jessica Lang and, and Jeff Bridges. And Jeff is like, oh, we just like a couple more blocks. We can get to an apartment. And she's just like, oh, come on. There's a bar right there. Just buy me a drink first. Like, if there's no one here. Like, Kong can't find us here. Like, just buy me a drink. And then they go in the they go in this and, like, and and I like that because there's really no and that's kind of I I just like that whole like that the ending wasn't like it was screaming and everybody's running all over the place it was like you know some people got out of there there's really no reason you couldn't just hide like in a random restaurant at a right building. exactly and then they go into this like Italian restaurant and like it's all abandoned anyway so they just are basically like. Like they get like they get drinks, and I like that Bridges like has this line where it's like I'm I'm not getting in trouble for this. I've been in enough trouble. I'm I'm paying for this no matter what. Um, even I like the obvious moment too when, when Bridges looks at the World Trade Center, and he's like, "Where have I seen this? I've got deja vu." And then you know later it's revealed that like, oh right, it was like these two big structures on Kong's Island, and then like Bridges realizes like, oh man, oh because. There's this other scene, like I, I did like that there is this quiet moment in the bar between them. There's yes, this, like I, nice I like little, little because there's this whole thing where it's like they were gonna they were gonna get married, they were like fell in love over this trip, and then like Jeff left. He said he's like, you know, he basically breaks up with her over her choosing 
her stardom over, you know, you know, the morals of Kong or whatever. And she's like, you know, as her regrets is like, is your offer still on the table? And then Jeff's like, I don't know. Kong is pretty big. He could get between us, basically. Like, he's just like, Kong is still between us. He kind of says it in a joking way, but that's when he realizes that Kong's going to head eventually to the World Trade Center because they look like two mountains on his island. Meanwhile, also, another moment I really loved is, you know, there's also this kind of joke where some woman left her fur coat in the restaurant and, like, Juan's like, I could never afford this. It looks good on you. It's like, I could never afford to like, you know, get you this, this good stuff. If you're, you know, you have to become the star, whatever. So there's a mirror by the door and she's just like kind of trying on the coat while Jeff's like calling the military and being like trying to make a deal where it's like, listen, I'll tell you where Kong's going. If you promise not to kill him, yada, yada, yada. You just see like her modeling this coat. And then you just see the, the giant hand of Kong. So, so goofy just enter the door of this restaurant and then like he grabs her and then it cuts it it's kong like in the window being like i found you i finally found you yeah 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 but this the shot of that giant mechanical hand like coming in to the 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 restaurant i like really liked yeah but as as jeff bridges predicted kong does not go to the empire state building but does go to the World Trade Center, which was pretty new at the time of this film's recording, which is why De Laurentiis wanted to take advantage of, of it. And Kong climbs up, uh, I believe it's the South Tower of the World Trade Center. Yeah, yeah. And then um, and then I, I just, again, I, I just liked how all this was played. Oh, um, when Kong jumped from one That build- was awesome. That was yes. excellent. So basically, like Jeff is, you know, Jeff Bridges is climbing after him, and the military's there, and there's like flamethrower people that come up, and the military's guys like, I didn't send those people up there. Why they listen to my orders? So there's like these flamethrower people that are like scaring Kong. It's like we got him now, and Kong basically, yeah, he just like kind of does a little run and jumps, essentially like leaps from one tower to the other, and it looks really cool. It looks really fun, um, just in the terms of a fun shot. Yeah, and then um yeah, and he goes for it too, which yeah, he, I, which I thought was pretty they, great. They they really showcase like again, the movement of the suit is like really good here, where it's like it really gives you that full motion of him just leaping across these buildings and pretty much almost, you know, I think he like kind of like grabs on, but like there's almost like with with effortlessness, but also like dangerous. It's like a really nice mixture. Yeah, and and it's a nice little kind of like set PC thing to do if you have the twin towers, like you know. Yeah, if you, you have the well. two towers there as well, yeah. and then and then uh, Kong gets uh, Alex Murphy from RoboCop. Yeah, so basically, uh, these these there's this yeah the moment is Kong is holding Jessica and you know she's like as long as you hold me Kong like they won't shoot you because that's what happened with like the flamethrowers that they kind of stopped when they he had him. But then he looks, Kong looks, and there's these three helicopters coming, and they have these huge miniguns. And Kong basically, like, they give him, like, a, I'm resigned to this. Like, I know what's about to happen. So he puts down Duan to, like, protect her. And then they just open fire. And, yeah, it's just, it's just uh, yeah, you're right. It's Alex Murphy and Robocop. He just gets obliterated with bullets. It is, it is so bloody. Yeah. I was just, not expecting this. You just see the bullets keep hitting and like Kong's fur, you just see blood popping out. It's like all red and like different, like it's very brutal and it keeps going too. It's a very long sequence 
of of him getting shot. Well, see, that's like the thing. It's like, you know, it's one of those things where, like, listen, I don't know if, like, you know, it's funny where it's like, yeah, like, at one point he throws and, and like, you know, kind of like an explosive thing at the, the, the flamethrower guys. Yeah. And then, like, Jeff Bridges is like, yeah, Kong, get him. I don't know if I'm at that point in the movie. Where right. I'm yeah. Like, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Kong, Kong is uh, everybody else is the bad guy. And Kong yeah, is, is good. It is kind of cool. He throws it from one tower to the other. That's right. kind of cool too. But you, you can't help but like be like, oh fuck, man. I don't want to see him get like shot up like this though. This is, yeah. oh, so that, that was really effective. That was, that was really Even like brutal. when he, cause they do the fall, you know, they do the fall and everybody's like below him and then he falls and they do kind of the slow heartbeat thing. Yeah. Which I thought like was actually a very funny connection to Godzilla versus Kong. Cause like kind of something they have to restart his heart there. Yeah. So I thought that yeah. was kind of a really funny kind of like, in, you know, incidental connection, and, but they do then... the kind of the slow death and his heartbeat is like slower and slower and slower. And this, it's kind of a, it's just again a well directed moment where you just hear the bump bump, and it's just like that's all that's filling the scream, and you hear it slow down and slow down as Kong like slowly dies. And you know the one thing that like really like because as they go to mediums and as they go to wides, it's the first time I ever thought about when watching any of these Kong movies, where I was like, I, it was the first time I felt like that's a dead animal right there. Yeah, like and and it's just like I know that's like kind of seems like a silly yeah, like, of course it is, but like because of everything leading up to it. And, 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 you know, I'll give it credit. Like, you know, I got to give credit where credit's due because, you know, it was this practical guy in this suit that you really, that you could, that you connected to, but more so because of how brutal and visceral, like the, the, the gunning him down was. Yes. When it's the body there, you just really feel like, oh, that's a dead animal right there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then like, it's so great. Like the paparazzi climbing up on him to get pictures is so gross. And then it all leads to like one of the ballsiest endings I've seen where, you know, Dwan comes down and she's basically kind of welcomed with open arms, like by the, the unsuspecting crowd. who's like, yeah, like, yeah, like you got saved from, from the beast and here, here you go. Let's take pictures. And she is just a mess because she's like you know she was fond of this thing and she's like oh my god like what's happening like, and she's like, look she's looking for jeff bridges and she's calling for him in the crowd and like he's like trying to get through but the paparazzi eventually just encircle her yeah like the paparazzi and she's got like all these adoring fans and and you know it's pretty obvious it's making the whole like this is her comeuppance for like you wanted fame here it is like, right. it's, it's, it's her comeuppance for 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 deciding to go through with the beauty and the beast farce and, as and i to- have to of all the choices of this movie i thought this was the most interesting fascinating thing i've ever seen the fact it, it really is the fact that the movie ends on this it right. really just the movie just cuts with like her like because it pans out you know, and, and Jeff and her never get to reunite. It pans out as like the paparazzi surround her and you just see the giant dead Kong behind her as people kind of mill about and then the credits start rolling up. Right. It, it's it's a great ending. It it's really is. It, it's super. It's it's an awesome ending that I, I, I did not see. Come, because you're right. Like it. And and that's why it's like kind of like, you know, there are some moral lessons in that, but it's just kind of like this. There's something fascinating about like, Oh, uh, just the one bad night 
ending Mm -hmm. like whether like you know it's not completely applicable but like you know when you go into like texas chainsaw massacre or like those early halloween movies where it's like everybody kind of gets out or they like survive the ordeal but Mm -hmm. it's like it's more about like fun they they went through all this stuff yeah so that's kind of like the same type of feeling i got from from this and and yeah that, that, that was awesome yeah and that's king kong 1976 i i really enjoyed talking about this and and just again like for all of the flaws that it still does have that we've laid out like it really is kind of a gem and and a film that I'm glad you know will have a chance to kind of be kind of rediscovered in in a in some new context with the with the new release of Shout Factory and with the kind of just the general Kong interest. Like I just thought that this was again some fun special effects, some fun choices, you know. Because again, like even when we'll get to 2005, but again, 2005 again is expanded, but also very much just 33. Like it's the same you know time period and beats and everything like that. And I think that the fact that just even just the slight detail differences, even if it doesn't wholesale change the story, just make things interesting enough where it just it is kind of refreshing to an extent of like the three Kong, the three major Kong films. Yeah, I, I want to make it very clear. I really enjoyed watching it. I really, I, I, wanna, I really did. And I want to make that clear because like it, it really sounded like I was kind of beating up the movie a, a little bit and I, I may have been slightly more openly critical of yeah. it but i did enjoy watching it oh yeah and I, it's just we... one of those things like you know like i kind of like again i kind of approach these movies where i kind of like look at the whole piece and like you know there's certain things like the closest thing to like a thing that just didn't work for me as a red flag was that early jessica lang stuff mm-hmm. and i could do without creepy kong that yeah. those are really my only big things but I was just so immersed in the production of the film that it made the whole thing worth it. Yeah. And I was, I was should say that, you know, right now, as at the time of this release, you do not have to wait for that shout factory Blu-ray. If you want to watch the movie, it is available right now on HBO max. Yeah. So it's a, it's, if you're looking for something to watch on like a weekend, I would, I would recommend it. I, I would definitely. definitely recommend it. And now will Dino De Laurentiis is two for two for us on this podcast. What was the Flash Gordon? Oh, oh, Flash Gordon. Right, right, right. I thought there was. Though, oh, wait, no, no, no. There was. Um, he wasn't completely involved in a in a Godzilla thing. He almost was, right? He almost that, was. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah. Um, and uh, thankfully, I don't think we're going to be reviewing the original Dune on this podcast because I think that would basically break the streak for us. All right. So with that, I do want to mention kind of the aftermath of this movie and its release. So again, released. On December uh, 17th, 1976, um, the film was a major success financially, uh, ended up grossing about $90 million worldwide on a $24 million budget. It's the, it was the fifth highest grossing film of 1977, since that's where the movie made most of its money. Uh, so it earned it aired tri- triple of its budget back. Uh, was number one at the box office opening weekend. Very much that marketing and the big hype around the movie worked. It was very much a a big success. Review-wise, it was very mixed. Um, Mixed reviews. Some people really liked it. Some people didn't like it. Some people had fond memories of the 33 original and didn't like the changes. Some people thought the changes were good. Special effects were very much a... um, at the time, uh, very 
mixed bag as well. Uh, though it's, it's defenders at the time were very big defenders of the special effects. Most hmm. notably, it did win a honorary uh, Academy Award for um, a special effects, though that one had some people in the board resign because they felt that some of the ways it, it got up to getting that special achievement award was very controversial. Hmm. Also nominated for Best Cinematography and Best Sound. Uh, I can tell you, though, one group of people that hated this movie, the owners of the Empire State Building. <laughs> they, they were pissed that they were not involved in this King Kong remake. Uh, there was an open letter that was written by the building that said that the Empire State Building is Kong's building. No other building is it. And they also staged a protest, quote unquote, in which they had a bunch of their employees dress up like monkeys on the 107th floor and hold up signs uh, disowning the 1976 version of Kong. Um, but over the years, again, this is kind of one of those movies that got lost to kind of history for a while, uh, just kind of got overshadowed again by the other Kong stuff that happened, especially once 2005 came out. It has had a resurgence in recent years, especially because that DVD was hard to find. It became a pretty popular item a few years ago uh, as the film had never been officially re released on Blu-ray until again, come this coming May, or you may have heard it past May that Shout Factory will be releasing this movie for the first time in the United States on Blu-ray that will feature both the theatrical cut and the 45 minute longer TV cut of the movie uh, for the first time ever released. Uh, as well as other bonus features. I believe there's also going to be uh, a classic making of on there at least as well. Yeah, so. I, I'm really looking forward to getting that. Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be a good set. Um, and that was uh, King Kong 76. I, I'm glad we're doing Kong for this. I'm glad we get to do uh, these types of movies. Because again, this is what's the fun of kind of discovering these movies is kind of these kind of unexpected gems that pop up. And uh, I'm glad that uh, I got to watch King Kong 76 and I'm also very highly considering just grabbing, grabbing the Blu-ray because I thought it was a very fun film. Absolutely. I recommend it. Um, and uh, despite how I sounded, enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, guys. I really, truly did. So that wraps it up for King Kong 1976. When we next return to the King Kong franchise, we are going to be taking a look at a much more obscure film in the Kong line, uh, the official sequel to the 76 version of King Kong, um, in which we are going to also have another returning person on this podcast. Uh, the star of Dante's peak, Linda Hamilton will be gracing our screens once again, as we take a look at the eighties Kong movie, King Kong lives, which I'm going to have to find out because that movie is, also very rare so we'll have to see where that's available or if i have to uh find some dvd copy of it so um any case king kong lives will be the next time we visit the kong side of things but don't forget we also have star trek on this podcast now and if we were excited to watch kong 76 i know both of us are very excited to revisit our next star trek movie again time to go find some whales time to go do some time traveling time to have just some fun comedy i can't wait to discuss my love for this next movie star trek for the voyage home looking forward to it all right everybody and that's going to wrap us up today just remember bonzilla at gmail.com 
as our email address. You can tweet us. Again, tweeting us is the best way to get our attention. That's twitter.com slash bonsill 7 facebook.com slash bonsill 7 Please like and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. We're having a great time. You guys are having a great time. It's been a fun April. May is going to be fun. I cannot wait. Awesome. All right, everybody. Take care. And uh, I, I don't have anything clever for the end of this one. Bye-bye. A priest gets dressed up like an ape and gets laid. <laughs>